3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, hundreds of marchers gathered in East L.A. this past Saturday to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium, when tens of thousands came to protest the disproportionate death toll of Mexican-Americans in the Vietnam War. It would be the largest gathering of Mexican-American demonstrators up to that point and a key moment for the Chicano movement in its heyday. But what would begin as a joyous march and rally would turn violent and deadly. We examine the protest's legacy. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Los Angeles journalist Ruben Salazar died 50 years ago Saturday when a sheriff's deputy struck him in the head with a tear gas canister. He died instantly, according to the people who were there that day, August 29, 1970. On that day, more than 20,000 people had gathered in East L.A. to protest the disproportionate death toll of Mexican-Americans in the Vietnam War. The Los Angeles Times has launched a project examining the social, political, and cultural legacy of the National Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War. And two of the writers on the project join us now. Gustavo Ariano is a features writer for the LA Times, host of the LA Times' This is California, the Battle of 187 former publisher and editor of Orange County's Alternative Weekly, OC Weekly, and the author of the column, Ask a Mexican. His books include Ask a Mexican and Taco USA. Welcome to Forum, Gustavo Ariano.
4: Gracias for having
3: me really appreciate you being here also with us daniel hernandez a reporter covering culture in la for the la times he's formerly a reporter for the style section of the new york times editor of la taco producer and correspondent for vice news editor of vice mexico and staff writer at la weekly welcome to forum daniel hernandez hi thank you i'm going to start with you daniel if i could and uh I'd like to, of course, help everybody know and understand and remember what the Chicano moratorium was. And could you first explain why it was called a moratorium?
5: Yes. Well, the moratorium uh, term, I guess, came from this idea that activists of the period who were distressed by the disproportionate numbers of casualties that were calculated among uh, Mexican-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, wanted a moratorium, a suspension of the loss of uh, brown lives in the um, theater of war there in uh, Vietnam. And so for them, it was really pertinent and really important to literally put a stop to um, these deaths um, because during the tumult of the late 1960s and into the 1970s, Um, There was, of course, obviously a lot of different civil rights movements, and this was the one that was really most activating, I think, um, young Chicanos, young Mexican-Americans across the country. I mean, much of the organizing happened in the Bay Area, Denver, Arizona, Texas, and in in, in Southern California, in East L.A.
3: And so what did people attribute the disproportionate number of deaths to?
5: Well, that's an interesting question. I think that there's actually still a lot of um, historicizing to be done about that um mexican-americans of course since um, the earliest um, conflicts that this country has been involved in have kind of always been there and available kind of front and center and have been involved in the major um uh, interventions and wars that the united states has been involved in and so i think that there is some something about tradition in the mexican-american community um siblings relatives of mine have you know uh, served in the armed forces and And so uh, there's probably an element of that. Um, But I also think that given that Mexican-Americans and Latinos were and have been historically so marginalized by the institutions and by the government or abused by the police, which quickly became another element of struggle of the Chicano moratorium, that there is more of an incentive or people pushing young Mexican-Americans to go um, into the service as opposed to, let's say, higher education.
3: You know, one of the things that I was so struck by was how joyous everyone describes the Chicano moratorium as being. Can you talk about that? And, and when did it start to turn?
5: Yes, well, it really was. There's this very um, uh, a beloved photograph that still circulates of a, uh, a couple that had just gotten married that briefly joins the march. There were people, um, obviously it was Mexican-American led, but there were people of all ethnicities and colors that were present there including, you know, activist Jewish-American lawyers and African-Americans in solidarity. Um, And it really was a very familial, joyous sort of event. There had been, according to the accounts, um, kind of fringe elements the way that we have today, you know, frankly speaking, in terms of some of the peaceful protests that occur in our cities today, of people who are sort of taunting or trying to confront some of the um, sheriff's deputies that were um, sort of monitoring the course of the march once it reached the park there was some kind of trouble at a liquor store about a block away it's so crazy because i was literally just there this weekend and i saw it's still named the green mill liquor store Mm -hmm. um there was and police were called there and then that's where someone threw a bottle and then the word basically of rioting or of, of theft kind of arose from there and then the sheriff's department literally seemed to just sort of raid the park and start attacking indiscriminately with batons and with tear gas um, the people who had been gathered there and then some elements of, of the people who were being attacked um, through the tear gas back through bottles and rocks and so um, it kind of all devolved from there
3: and of course gustavo ariano this is the protest that get, that killed ruben salazar um this event was where it happened. And that is what your piece reflects on quite a bit was the police killing of this journalist. Can you remind us who Ruben Salazar is, first of all?
4: Ruben Salazar is a titan of American journalism in the sense that he literally created a genre from nothing, the Latino beat, covering Latinos as more than just as uh, some people call them zoo pieces, uh, treating Latinos as individuals. So he was a reporter born in Juarez, right across from El Paso, but grew up in El Paso, joined the Los Angeles Times in 1959, one of three Latino reporters at the time, ends up becoming a foreign correspondent, covered California as well. Then in 1969, uh, the owner of the Los Angeles Times. Otis Chandler calls him back from Mexico City and says, look, we f- we finally realized, hey, there's a lot of Mexican-Americans here in Southern California. And they're really upset. You start covering them, and so he covered them for a year as a reporter. But he felt stymied by a career advancement at the Los Angeles Times. So in 1970, he gets a job as a news director for KMX, Canal 34, which is a Univision station now in Southern Cal, in Southern California. But the Los Angeles Times also offered him a role as a columnist. In other words, he was gonna, you know, he was now going to be able to give his opinions about the. The, you know, the day and especially with Mexican-American movements. His first one, uh, February 6, 1970, was called What Is a Chicano and What Is It That He Wants, is a classic immediately of Chicano literature. You read it even today, it's literary lightning.
3: And well, can you tell us what happened to him? And I realized when I read the intro, I, I called what killed Salazar a tear gas canister, but really in later reading other articles on the project, I mean, it was like a torpedo-shaped projectile that was designed to rip through plywood that was shot into the bar where he was, right?
4: Oh, yeah. It it was horrific. So what ended up happening was uh, Ruben's there uh, in his role as a news director for Kamaeki's on August 29th, 1970. Things start really to get Horrible, frankly, so he ducks into a bar with one of his colleagues the silver the silver dollar cafe by all accounts He's drinking a beer Uh, The LA sheriff's deputies say they get a call that there's a hostage situation inside the silver dollar cafe Even though everyone says there wasn't so there's an iconic photo taken by Raul Ruiz a legend in Chicano journalism that shows an LA sheriff's deputy holding what looks like a little bazooka, but it's his tear tear gas gun as a woman's desperately trying to make him stop. He fires this canister, this projectile. Really, no more than twenty feet inside the bar. The bar is the, the the door is open, but there's a curtain as a partition. It goes directly into the bar and immediately kills Ruben. And if you see the picture, though, you know I'm not a police officer, but I have friends who are in law enforcement, and they say, you know, when you're at a crowd, when you fire a tear gra- a tear gas, you fire it on the ground so it scatters. You don't fire it up like you don't even fire it at, at, at face uh, level because because of that very reason that they could hurt someone. Well, in this case, it killed someone. They left Ruben's body there for seven hours until they finally were able to take it out.
3: And, you know, these facts have left people wondering if, in fact, Ruben Salazar was targeted uh, by sheriff's deputies and police. Can you explain why?
4: In early in one of his first columns, he angered the police chief of Los Angeles, Ed Davis, hugely in the fact to the point where Ed Davis basically put him on an enemies list. At that time already, the FBI is invested, has a secret file for Salazar, and they actually got a source within the Los Angeles Times. No one to this day knows the identity of him. Towards his last days, Ruben was telling his colleagues and friends, hey, I think I'm being followed. I think I'm being uh tailed by the LAPD because he I mean again you want to talk about prophecy he was talking about police brutality in the Latino community in 1970 and so to this day there are people who still say Ruben Salazar was targeted if not flat out assassinated there was a coroner's inquest done just about a week after his killing that found at you know at best it was a tragic horrible accident and the la sheriff's uh, department at the time said yeah our guy wasn't uh, following his training which nevertheless this guy who didn't follow training and killed this iconic reporter faced no discipline and you know c- c- and still lives to this day
3: you know you referenced his column also who is a chicano and what is it the chicano's want and i just want to read a little bit from it just because i, I do think it gives you a real sense of of salazar he writes mexican americans though indigenous to the southwest are on the lowest rung scholastically economically socially and politically chicanos feel cheated they want to affect change now mexican americans have to live with the stinging fact that the word mexican is a synonym for inferior in many parts of the southwest that is why mexican american activists flaunt the barrio word chicano as an act of defiance and a badge of honor. Gustavo Ariana, what what does Salazar what does his writing mean to you? I mean, initially you weren't super taken with his work as I understand.
4: Oh no, like there's a great collection of his work called Border Correspondent uh, released by the University of California Press and it takes the totality of his career. So I first came up upon his work as a college student even before I wanted to be a reporter. So I was looking for a radical and you read a lot of his stuff. He, you know, let's be honest, he wasn't the greatest of writers. And so, I, you know, so looking for this radical, I'm like, this is, it. I mean, the, the, Chico- the his initial column is amazing, but the rest is like, you have some hits and misses, definitely not the person I thought he was going to be. So I gave the book away. Now, a little bit wiser, 20 years later, I see that the strength of Ruben was again, I I call him like the journalistic John the Baptist when it came to issues of Mexican American, both representation in the newsroom and in the pages of the paper. So he created a beat out of nothing. You, You see some of his writings, both columns and reporting, uh, he's writing about stuff we still talk about to this day. He was writing about gentrification in, in Mexican-American communities 55 years ago, police brutality, educational attainment, the question of immigration, the question of very much of identity. I, you know, So reading him uh, 20 years ago, I thought, oh, he was like he's cliched. He's writing about the stuff that everyone's writing about. But I didn't realize he was the first person to do so.
3: We're talking with Gustavo Ariano, a columnist for the LA Times and Daniel Hernandez, a reporter covering Los Angeles culture for the LA Times. We're talking about the Chicano moratorium in 1970. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your memories of that day? What are your questions about the moratorium and its legacy? Do you remember Ruben Salazar's columns? Did they have any impact on you? And do you see parallels to what happened 50 years ago and what's happening today? Join us. 866-733-6786 is the number to call at KQED Forum on Twitter and Facebook. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the 50 year anniversary of the National Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War and the protests legacy. We're joined by Daniel Hernandez, a reporter covering LA culture for the LA Times and Gustavo Ariano a columnist for the LA Times. And you, our listeners, join us. What are your questions, comments, thoughts, memories? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm joined now by Consuelo Flores, who participated in the protest at age nine. Welcome to Forum, Consuelo Flores. Hi there. How are you guys doing? Well, thank you. You were just nine years old, but you have very vivid memories of that day. I understand. What do you remember?
6: Um, Well, as I mentioned to um, Daniel, when he interviewed me a couple weeks ago, I was nine years old and I was the last of 10 kids. Seven of the brothers and sisters were, were going to march that day. Two of those brothers were, um, leaders in the march they had been organizing as part of the movement um because one of my oldest brothers had gone to vietnam and even though he had returned a lot of the neighbors in our in our uh, little community had had a lot of brothers and sons uh come back either more wounded or or in body bags and so Mm -hmm. there was an understanding that there was um uh, a large imbalance in it, inequity in how many soldiers uh, who were minority were coming back uh, either severely wounded or or in body bags. And my, uh, I, I as a child, I did not know exactly what the um, what the significance of the march was at the time. What I did know was that it was an important thing and that it was going to help in some way that brother. And so what I, um, I was very excited. It was sort of like a, a a special event. And, and there was um, an opportunity for me to participate with my whole family, uh, which I was very excited about. And uh, I, I knew that it was an important thing. And, and so I, I wanted something to I wanted to wear something special for that day so that same brother who had gone to war had given me a pair of red shoes a red tennis shoes and so I wore them in the night before it was very exciting for me I went to bed early I uh, was so excited the next day I got up early it was sort of like a Christmas and birthday but it was different so I up. I, I tried to do everything quickly that day with the idea that if I did it quickly, the time would pass quickly. And uh, we were all, all of my sisters and one of the younger brothers uh, were all on the porch of my mom and dad's home in East Los Angeles. And we could hear the march and we could hear um, as it was coming up the street on its on the way to Laguna Park at the time was Laguna Park. And that's where we had gone swimming. That's where the plunge was. That's where I learned to swim. So my mom was like, yeah, sure, go and just be careful. And- um
3: Well, I so- think you're really capturing the, the joyous moment and the anticipation of what that, that day would be, Consuelo. And I, I love your detail about wanting to wear those special shoes that your brother had given you. What happened to those shoes? Why don't you still have them today?
6: And this is where I start to kind of get emotional. So I think it's just PTSD. I think that really impacted my life so much. And even talking about it the years later is really, um, it gets me. So I, um, I was, I went to the march and I, I was wearing my red shoes and we got to the park and everything was great. Everything was wonderful. Um, there were you know, speakers and there were a bunch of people and there were, you know, I was interested in folklorical dancing. So I made sure I sat right in front of the stage where the folklorical dancers were gonna yeah, be performing. Okay. And so I, I went ahead and sat down with my sisters. My oldest sister was, um, my oldest sister was sitting between me and the next oldest to me on her right. I was on my oldest sister's left. And so we're, we're sitting there and the folklorical dancer started and I was very excited. And suddenly somebody ran up to the stage and um, started yelling, everybody get out of the park now. Everyone get out of the park now. And suddenly again, I felt the ground beneath me shaking, and I didn't know what was going on. And as I'm trying to turn around to look at what was happening behind me, I could see bottles and smoke and and rocks, and I could, uh, all of a sudden, was getting lifted by my right arm. And I had taken off my shoes at that point to see the folklorico dancers after the march, and I did not have enough time to put, to tie those shoes on. So I just slipped them in as, as quickly as possible, and I started running. And my sister is like, we've got to run, we got to run. In the chaos of that moment, we lost all of our other siblings. So it was just the three of us. And we, were, we ran to the end of the park, and we were standing on a corner, and I was trying to get my shoes back on correctly, like tie them. And at the same time, I saw a policeman hit a, a man over the head, with a baton and blood just started streaming down his face. And my sister said, let's go. We've got to run. So we started running. We went back up to Whittier Boulevard and we started running home. And at this point, I'm trying desperately not to lose my shoes, but I'm I'm just running, and this, the, the cops are shooting at us. They're shooting tear gas at us, and my nose is br- burning. My lungs are burning, and my eyes were crying at this point. And suddenly, I just lost the shoes, I, and I started running barefoot on you know, hot August
3: I can- asphalt. I can see why this event would bring up such emotions for you. I mean, what you're describing is, is traumatic and also to experience it as a nine-year-old, you know, before I let you go, I wonder what you feel like you, you learned that day. Um, You lost your shoes, but I almost feel like you're talking about losing something else as well. Almost like a sense of, yeah. We
6: got home, we got home and uh, my sister was lost. So one of my sisters was lost And my brothers had to go find her and they did find her and they brought her home. She was overcome by tear gas and she was vomiting at that point. Uh, It was a very traumatic experience. And then later on that night we saw what was referred to at that point as the riots. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a riot at all. And um, a couple of days later we We went down Whittier Boulevard to the park to survey the damage that had occurred during that, you know, the the police brutality that they had um, inflicted on our community. And I, on the way back home, I saw my red shoes. They were against the curb on Whittier Boulevard, and they were, I had taken such care of them, and they were completely battered. They were dirty. And I realized I could never get them. I was not ever going to be able to get them back. And uh, years later, I realized that that was, in essence, when I lost my innocence, when I really understood what how our community was viewed and how disposable we were to those people who were in charge. And I also vowed at that point without really being able to verbalize it, um, I vowed that I would do everything I could in my lifetime to ensure that that never happened to anybody else again, that there was going to be some kind of justice. And I have worked Um, for social justice issues all of my life Uh, and that is basically how those red shoes came to symbolize um, what my jobs my life's goal was going to be my life's focus.
3: Consuelo, thank you for sharing that story I really appreciate it and I'm sorry that uh, that we've asked you to remember something that is clearly so difficult, but at the same time, it is amazing the kind of impact it had on you and the way that it impacted your career. Consuelo, Flores joining us just now and Daniel Hernandez I mean that Hernandez that really is a big part of this story right isn't just what happened at the protest itself but but the way that it affected people and in many ways many Mexican-Americans afterwards can you talk a little bit about what you learned in terms of its legacy or its impact?
5: Yeah well as Consuelo's um, story and as her moving account of what happened that day I think demonstrates um, the emotions remain really um, very raw and real and very uh, current and fresh I guess um, in terms of how that event impacted the um, the promise of what this kind of cultural Renaissance and political awakening that was occurring in that era which is something that most of us today, only read about, or, or or hear about, or see in the documentary films, and and, and read about in the stories that we try to produce. Um, but you know, thankfully, we still have people who are there who can help us understand, um, you know, both how deeply it impacted, but um, uh, the community at large, but also sort of how kind of normal these kinds of confrontations, in many ways, um, would would go on to become, and even still to this day. I mean, there are protests um, that are. Latino-led in, in Los Angeles about um, uh, unarmed uh, Latino men who were killed by sheriffs or the LAPD to this day. And so I think that um, it is important to remember, though, that ultimately um, what occurred that day really affected each person on an individual level and in different ways.
3: Well, let me go to caller Michael in Oakland. Hi, Michael. Join us.
7: Hi. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I'm one of the probably many non-Latinos who was there at that march. I'm so glad that they're, uh, you know, bringing this back into the consciousness because I thought it had been forgotten to history. Uh, I was a young teacher, I had just come back from the Peace Corps in Borneo. My first job was teaching adults in East Los Angeles in a federal program. And so I had made very close friends, and I had one particular family that uh, basically adopted me. I was part of their family, and we were all at this wonderful occasion uh, protesting the war, but protesting it with music and dance and laughter and families and picnics. And it was just, it was, it was really a wonderful, memorable uh, event until uh, what's been described began and police came charging into this group of peaceful people sitting on the grass enjoying themselves uh tear gas began wafting over everything i remember uh, my friends my family lived about one block from the park so we ran back and forth and back and forth uh, taking chi- mostly children but also older people who had been uh, affected by the tear gas uh into our home into their home <laughs> and you know washed their faces and, and maybe fed them and so the the house grew larger and larger in terms of the people uh, getting away from the from, from the devastation and um, across the street from the house that i uh, that, that they lived in, where I was then uh, a guest, was a fire station. There was a police car in front of the fire station which had been overturned and set on fire, and so there was a cop guarding that fire station. And uh, that road that they lived on led from Whittier Boulevard onto the freeway. Uh, And a man, an older man, was driving down toward the freeway entrance, and he looked absolutely terrified. And the cop across the street leveled his gun and said a couple of times, halt, halt, and then shot him. And, and, uh, And he then his car smashed into a uh, telephone pole and the wire came down. And the next day, the newspaper reported that he had been electrocuted. In fact, he had been shot uh, before he was electrocuted. And I also remember walking down with my friend to, to get my car afterwards, which is several miles down the, down Whittier Boulevard. And at every, at every intersection, at every corner, there were armed police. And my friend and I, these are adults now, this is an adult uh, Chicano, and I had to stop raise our hands sort of be given the go ahead to cross the street and we did that block after block after block and then i uh, uh that family my my family uh, moved in with me for one night into my home which was uh, a place called Monterey Park a little bit east of east la but anyway it is an absolutely uh, uh <clears throat> firm and clear memory in my head and i've been sort of waiting for someone to remember this uh, this This not just event, but this this feeling that was uh, that encapsulated the whole community. And later on, just a a little postscript, when I got very deeply involved in in criminal reform, I was at a. prison conference. And my little roommate in my hotel where we had the conference uh, was a Chicano man who had come back from Vietnam. And he described his memory of Vietnam as a quotation, as a a sound memory, which was, Gonzales, take the point. And the point is where one man walks in front of everyone else to either find mines, often by triggering them and killing them or losing their legs, or drawing fire, so mm. only one person gets it. So, But, it, but his memory was, Gonzales, take the point. So that was a job often reserved for Latinos and African-American soldiers.
3: Michael, thanks for sharing those memories. And also, um, really, you are underscoring Sorry. what has been brought up already, which is, just the incredible impact that this, that this protest, that this moratorium had on so many people's lives. Let me go to Ray in Santa Barbara next. Hi, Ray. Join us. Hello. Hi, Ray. You're on.
0: Okay. Uh, I was not there, but uh, my brothers, my two brothers and my cousin, at least one cousin of mine. I have many cousins. They were there. My cousin Bobby was really beaten badly and uh, I had to work at Jack in the Box in Santa Ana, Orange County to put myself through college. So I couldn't go, but I think the the thing that I took out of it the most was the death of Ruben Salazar because I've been a journalist all my life, about 45 years and, uh, I think uh, a lot of other people like me, maybe thousands, were inspired by what he was trying to do. And uh, you should remember, he was not a, a liberal, you know, raving, you know, Chicano activist. And um, he, he was very conservative. He lived in Orange County like I did. And uh, he, he really uh, represented the type of thing that... Uh, I think California and the whole country needed more was more writings about uh, Chicanos. And uh, some, today, people don't uh, use that term that often, but uh, I always will. Because, uh, I'm a journalist who happens yeah. to be a Chicano. <laughs> and I, I urge everyone to read the L.A. Times articles by Robert Lopez. Uh, I believe it came out this week uh, about Salazar and about the moratorium in general, because um, uh, it, it, it says a lot. And in fact, the lady who lost her shoes is, is mentioned there in, in that article. But uh, Robert wrote, um, Robert's a great journalist, too, along well, with my friend George Ramos.
3: Well, thank you, Ray, for for sharing that. And uh, we have a listener who writes, Sonoma State University named its library Salazar Hall in the 1970s. Now I know why. We're remembering the 50th and, well, remembering the National Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War 50 years later, and we're hearing its impact and legacy. And we'll have more of that after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. This is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the 50 year anniversary of the National Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War and the protests legacy. We're joined by Gustavo Arellano, columnist for the LA Times, Daniel Hernandez, a reporter covering Los Angeles culture for the LA Times. And with you, our listeners, 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786 is the number to call about questions you have, comments, memories, also parallels you might see to this day. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. As I'm listening to these recollections, Gustavo Arellano, one of the things that I'm struck by is what is written as part of this project, that it fueled an urgency to make visible the Chicano experience. I was especially struck by Ray saying that, you know, not a lot of people use that term anymore, but he chooses to use it. I mean, do you have any thoughts on you know that urgency and and where that urgency is today
4: the urgency continues except the the young radicals progressives they no longer very few of them call themselves chicano anymore they call themselves latinx and that's perfectly fine you know and, and it's interesting how history keeps repeating itself but the one constant remains you have a group mexican americans who battle and try and do achieve stuff, but yet they still realize that the system is stacked against them. They realize that people still think of them in all sorts of horrible terms in many ways, going back to the 1850s here in California. And so something needs to be done about that. Uh, you know, I'm gr- I'm the child of Mexican immigrants. I never thought of myself as a Chicano until very, very recently. And for me, the term Chicano it connects me to the activists of the past and allows me to look forward and to try- into what we're all trying to do, no matter what you call yourself, which is better the situation in your community and better yourself
3: why did that term start to resonate with you more
4: Just in reading, learning more about the history and and seeing also seeing people now trying to castigate that term as somehow problematic and macho and homophobic and anti-black, all stuff that flies in the face of the historical reality. So one of the previous callers, the teacher who said, like, I was one of the many people who were not uh, Chicano, who were there at the moratorium. There's this great photo of a young black man marching hand in hand with uh, his fellow Chicanos during the famous Chicano. Chicano student walkouts of 1968, you also had African-American students walking out in solidarity with their uh, Chicano classmates and, uh, you know, and also to address their own issues as well. So for me, the term Chicano is really a political sense. Anyone can be a Chicano. You just have to be ready to, you know, fight for el movimiento.
3: I also read that there were uh, Japanese-Americans who had been incarcerated during World War II two who were there as well. You know, Daniel Hernandez, why did the moratorium committee disband? It's it's written almost as though sort of the movement maybe lost some momentum after this
5: event? That's a very good question. I think that after the kind of violence and shock of what occurred, that there was um, different reactions, right? And some people uh, sort of retreated entirely from activism. Gloria Arayanes was one of the key figures early in the Brown Berets, for example. She really began looking inward, and as one of the stories in the LA Times package um, by Vanessa Martinez and Julia Barajas um, sort of explores how she decided to really explore her indigenous uh, heritage, and she became an official member of a Tongva um, Atongba, um uh, tribal group there in uh, the Los Angeles area. Other people sort of stuck with the hard kind of activist um, mentality, but it's true. By the end of the following year, by I'm sorry, by the following August, um, the moratorium, I think, had suffered a lot of internal divisions. There was fear of infiltration, and infiltration, actually, by federal agents and by spies, basically, who would attempt to kind of sow division. And ultimately, the historical theory is that they were successful. And by uh, August of 1971, the original moratorium committee um, disbanded.
3: Well, we're joined now by Carmen Ramirez, who participated in the protest as a college student and is now a member of Oxnard City Council. Welcome to Forum, Carmen Mar- Ramirez.
8: Uh, Good morning. Thank you for this. And uh, it's always great to be interviewed by essential workers, the journalists of today.
3: (laughs) Well, thanks for saying that. I I wonder if you could tell me as a college student why you were drawn to the protest, why you wanted to make sure you were there.
8: Well, I was involved with MECHA, which was uh, the Chicano student group at Cal State LA. And I knew many people, including my brothers who were potentially going to be drafted. I I had graduated from high school in Pico Rivera um, in 1966, and immediately, following graduation, many of my classmates immediately went to Vietnam, and uh, not everybody came home. And also, we were seeing the disparity in uh, the death rate, the casualty rate, and the fact that many people, um, the the Latino community could not get into college didn't have uh, the ability to get a deferment. We know now that who got the deferments, uh, including someone in the White House uh, uh, who got deferments and before him, many other people. But in our community, it was difficult to get them because we didn't have access to higher education uh, as as much as we would have wished. So that was the issue, I think. And the, the pro- you know, the Chicano Mor term, I believe started out as it, the the spur for it was the blowouts of East LA where uh, students in our East LA high schools walked out a couple of years before complaining about lack of quality education, what it meant for their futures. And I think that may have been the start of the activism uh, of many people.
3: Mm, yes. And as Daniel and I was pointed out, some of the simmering tensions that um, That were existing uh, when the moratorium occurred. Do you see a through line, Carmen Ramirez, between the the career path you chose, the public service? I understand that you focus on environmental issues. Do you see a through line to that and the moratorium from from the moratorium to that?
8: Well, for me, it's been environmental justice issues. And uh, I, before, while I was in college, you know, I really was interested in being a lawyer, but for me, it wasn't just a dream, it was a fantasy. But because of opportunities that opened up, I was able to go to Loyola Law School, became a lawyer and uh, was a legal aid attorney for more than 20 years. And now I'm on city council here in Oxnard. But the through line is uh, the quest for justice and equality, which we're seeing in today's movements of social unrest demands for just in the Black Lives Movement. I'm very proud of our city council because we did unanimously adopt a resolution calling um, racism a public health crisis. And we did declare that Black Lives Matter. So I, I see the through line and you know, just as Martin Luther King said, you know, the it's, it's a long way, but we are going towards justice we have to keep fighting for it and those of us who think well you could get it in a day or um, you know I'm done I already did my five years of being a, an activist you know it's it's till the day you till the day you leave the planet
3: <laughs> well Carmen Ramirez thanks so much for your reflections really appreciate it
8: of course Thank Carmen you.
3: Ramirez a member of the Oxnard City Council who was at the National Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War and let me go to Kiara in Corte Madera. hi Kiara. Hi, Kiara. Are you with us? Hi there. Sorry,
2: I was on mute. No problem. <laughs> um, hi, I really appreciate this program. I'm very, very interested. I identify as a young Chicana. Um, I'm in my early 20s and have been coming into that identity within the past couple of years. Um, and in just reflecting on my parents' generation and then my grandparents' generation, who were very involved with like the farmworker strikes, I'm Just looking at the present state of like the protests that are happening around me for my generation of Chicanos and Chicanas and in reflecting on this era in the 70s, it feels like it was such a um, robust and um, powerful movement. And I think that I've been searching for that in the present
3: Hmm.
2: a bit and trying to understand what happened to it. And I understand the whole the questions that were just answered really do speak to that of how it transformed and kind of disseminated, but just it is kind of a then and now question of like, where do you see it now? Do you think there is the power to recoalesce into the strength of what the Chicano movement was then, um, how to bring back that organizing power um, for this new generation that didn't get to be there, but is existing within this current black lives matter moment. Kiarth, thanks. Gustavo Ariano, your thoughts?
4: I think it's per, it's happening, actually, it's triggered by Black Lives Matter and also, though, by this younger generation of whatever you want to call yourself is perfectly fine Latinx, Chicanos, or whatever, but they're looking at this history. I cannot overstate how, what, not just well-received, but embrace this project that the LA Times did. A lot of people saying I didn't know this history. A lot of people saying I read about it a little bit, but not in that detail. And so people are being inspired by the, you know, by the folks from the past, by the pioneers, and real pioneers, by the way, into going into the present day. But as always, but you know, let's also not romanticize the Chicano movement. A lot of the Chicano, the reason the Chicano movement also just petered out was because there was a lot of infighting. There was a lot of internecine warfare going on, which our package also gets into. So my hope is that this younger generation as all genera- younger generation should learn from the past, get the good, keep the bad in the past, and move and you know forward a better path forward for all of us. I
3: may be wrong, but my sense from reading what career paths and decisions that people made uh, Daniel and on this after this event, there was almost also this attempt to try to to try to reform um, as opposed to revolutionize the system (laughs) um yeah yeah go ahead
5: there was a you know i also spoke in the piece to gloria molina gloria molina um of course was uh one of the earliest latinas elected to the california assembly um she's kind of a titan in kind of california mexican-american politics she actually was hesitant at first to join the moratorium because she didn't want to marching behind get this mexican flags or flags of mexico she was a fully sort of assimilated in many ways um, mexican-american um and she had had a um unpleasant experience traveling to mexico basically as a tourist with mexican immigration authorities um so that kind of colored her view of the kind of middle of the road let's say um kind of viewpoint that she's always sort of maintained. And so I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of people chose to enter the institutions, people like Molina and others, and in different ways, of course, um, educational institutions, corporate institutions, and, and otherwise. And so I think that there really was a range of perspectives and ideologies that were represented there, which again, I think goes back to how important that event really was.
3: Well, let me go to Sylvia in Thousand Oaks. Hi, Sylvia. Hi. Thank Hi. you.
9: For- Please go right ahead. Yeah, um, I was at the moratorium. My uh, uncle, who had served in the Korean War, he'd come home, and I would always... I didn't live in the East L.A. I lived in the San Gabriel Valley, and, but I would visit my family there. And he, when he just said, come on, and he grabbed a bunch of us kids. And uh, I'm not sure how many of my cousins, we all went. We were walking down Whittier Boulevard um, in the moratorium, and... I didn't see any of the violence because I think that maybe it happened and then we left, I'm guessing. But I know later on in years, I found out that my other uncle was on stage at this. He was a, uh, I guess an activist of some sort in the, but uh, you know, so, and I was, I, I wish I had time to call my cousins to say, okay, you know, give me some more information to kind of put it together. But um, I remember, uh, we walk, were walking down and it was just fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And being with my uncle, which we, we all just, he was the oldest, he, we just loved him. And so it was, it was a great event being with my cousins. We were walking down the street and everyone was joyous. And, and I don't even, I thank God I didn't see the violence because I think that would have been awful, that poor girl, which she went through. and so, um,
3: Yeah. Sorry, Sylvia, was there one, something else you wanted to say?
9: Well, um, someone made reference about education and not in being... Um, my, my dad went to um, Roosevelt High School, and when he went to Roosevelt, he, um, his junior high uh, counselor said to him or brought him to the school and said, this is a college preparatorial young man. Please give him, you know, get him some classes. And they wouldn't give him anything college prep. They gave him all the wood shop, metal shop classes. Mm. And he went in, and I remember him asking... Um, he told me, my dad told me, he said, I went and said, please just give me one typing class. And they wouldn't give it to him.
3: Uh, Sylvia, that's quite a story. Thank you for sharing your recollections of that day. And also that story just really illuminating some of the larger things people were fighting for and the experiences that they had. Let me see if I can squeeze one last call in from Ron in Santa Rosa. Hi, Ron.
10: Hi, my name is Ron Lopez. I'm a professor of Chicago Latino Studies at Sonoma State University. I was too young, or I, was, I would have been only about six years old during the moratorium, but it left a lasting impact on me and, and many of my peers. Um, I know that one of the things that's come up is the divisions and also the efforts to divide, and even today, people arguing about, you know, like, what are we going to call ourselves? And I think those are, those are all things. Everybody should be allowed to call themselves what they like, What really matters is that we work together on issues of common purpose, like social justice, educational rights. I mean, all these kids that are denied educational opportunities, that's really wrong, but that's still happening. So in our communities, everybody listening can play a role in making things better. And it's all of us to do so.
3: Ron, thank you for that reflection. Lauren writes, I was a college student at Cal State Los Angeles and attended the protest with a Chicano friend of mine. The two of us were in the park when suddenly a sharp noise echoed through the park. We walked to my friend's house and climbed on the roof. Then we saw a huge plume of smoke and heard cheers from blocks away at the Goodyear tire plant known to be racist against Latinos was burning. Um, one of the things that we haven't actually talked about that I do just want to touch on with the couple minutes that we have left is just the impact that this event had on the arts. And as I hear people, Gustavo Ariano, talking about wanting to learn more or see more, I'm thinking of the murals that that emerged after this. Can you talk a little bit about about the impact that this had on on art, photography, music?
4: My my Times colleague Carolina Miranda, she wrote a definitive piece on this, but just really brief recap. The whole Chicano mural movement really sprouted out because of the moratorium. Uh, Legendary groups like Asco Performance Art from the moratorium. Dia de los Muertos, which now is celebrated all across the United States, arguably started in the wake of the Chicano moratorium. Poetry, music, so much of what is now Mexican-American, Latino art started because as a reaction to or reflection of the Chicano moratorium.
3: Yes, I love this line from Miranda's piece. It's moving what had been private into the public space.
4: Yeah, just a recapturing, if you know, if LA Sheriff's deputies and PD were going to crack down on public spaces and you know kill Ruben Salazar and two other men in the process, well, now the artists were gonna reclaim it for the community and they've been reclaiming it ever since.
3: Is there anything, Daniel Hernandez, that you feel like surprised you or that you learned from reporting on this project or even just looking at this moment that we're in now from the lens of covering the moratorium? That you could leave us with
5: yeah i mean um i think harry gamboa puts it very well he says that basically you know the harry gamboa was one of the founding members of osco and he was at the moratorium and he also sort of recalls it as a moment um which as carmen said earlier um, just on the call that um really solidified that um the participants commitment to social justice, whatever form that may take. Over the years it's been um, a role concentration on police brutality, then it becomes urban renewal or what is now called gentrification. And now the more direct um, confrontation and struggle over uh, police and justice reform and, and the effects of police violence, I mean all of that Um, the movements and even the organizing principles return to that period and and for the Mexican-American community return to the moratorium. So, yeah, it's really interesting just to see the little connections across time. The calls, for example, even on the program today, have just been so rich and moving. So you can see that those connections keep growing.
3: Yeah, well, Daniel Hernandez and Gustavo Arellano, thank you both for your work on this project. Daniel Hernandez, a reporter, Carbon Culture in L.A. for the L.A. Times, also formerly with the New York Times, and a correspondent with Vice, and also Gustavo Ariano, a columnist for the L.A. Times, as well also with, the, uh, with Ask a Mexican. Thanks, both of you. I'm Nina Kim.
2: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.